Good afternoon and welcome to episode 46 of the Cood Street Podcast. This week we're doing something a little bit different. We're going back to a previous episode to perhaps address a, you know, a, a wrong that we might have created in not really knowing what we we're talking about. Because last week we discussed part of well, some aspect of the career of the late Diana. We discussed part of well, some aspect of the career of the late Diana Wynne Jones, and it was pointed out to us quite rightly that maybe we weren't the most informed people to talk about it. So we thought we would perhaps. You know, bring some extra people in to talk to us, so we can look into her career more. Today we're going to be joined by um, do, today we're going to be joined by um, do, Tansy Rainer Roberts in Hobart. Hello, Tansy. Hello, Jonathan. Farah Mendelssohn in England somewhere. Hello, Farah. Good morning. I'm in London. <laughs> and Gary, which is of course the only place that exists. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this. I've heard that opinion expressed. And I've heard this. I've heard that opinion expressed. And good evening, Gary. Uh, good evening. It's not actually actually early morning here now. It's past midnight. Um, but um, but 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 we're all here. I, I I will I will admit in the beginning of this that I made you and Tansy uh, log on about made you and Tansy. Uh, Log on about two hours earlier than you should have because I miscalculated the times between here and and Hobart and Perth. Yeah. Uh, but at, at least at least I got it right for Farah, so she didn't have to get up early for this. And we did totally blow it, which we should now admit because well, it occurred to us after the fact that we should have recorded an extra backup podcast when we had Tansy uh, online because we got to talking mm-hmm. about the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which is one of those things that we could talk about at great length. Uh, but that will have to wait for another time, I guess. I think if I'd recorded two podcasts back to back on a Saturday afternoon, my family would have disowned me. So. <laughs> well, I, I guess we should start off perhaps by going back to last week and pointing out perhaps what caught, you know, has us here talking, which was, you know, we were talking about Diana Wynne Jones and Gary, you made the comment that you had the feeling that she was outside of the mainstream fantasy tradition or that she was very much her own thing. Is that really the case? I misstood. I, well, I misstated that, and and Tansy corrected me that on your uh, corrected me about that on your blog, and I think Tansy could probably explain. Well, okay, let me back up a little bit. I was trying to say that when I read the couple of books by her that I read, they seemed to me to be uh, not imitative in the way that much fantasy that I had read was imitative. Mm-hmm. Um, Tansy pointed out that the, there's a huge tradition of contemporary fantasy which is heavily influenced by Diana Wynne-Jones, which I, I thoroughly agree with, uh, having talked to Neil about it. But Tansy, would you, you want to explain that a little bit further? Because your correction of my misstatement was very eloquent. Well, thank you. I hope I can remember something of what I said. Well, I think you were talking about how she felt to you that she wasn't really placed very solidly in the genre because, yeah, you sort of didn't track back her, her influences. And I did mention that some of her influences were those which were often those forgotten by people talking about genre, like just because it, we are talking about um, the English fantasist right for children doesn't mean that that's not a significant, you know, genre contributors. It's just that they're ones that often get forgotten when people start talking about Tolkien and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the sword and sorcery types. But also, yeah, absolutely, I think her, her most posi- important position in genre is the way she's influenced later writers. And uh, that's something I became very aware of when I first started writing was how many other writers – talked about her as being their favourite writer or the one that has most influenced them. And Farah wrote an amazing piece for, was it Tor.com this last week? That's right. All, Thank you. All about, well, I think it, it just beautifully summed up what I'd been trying to say to Gary <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with far greater depth, which is all about how important she was and how influential she was on the whole generation, several generations of writer that have come after her. Um uh, Neil Gaiman, of course, being one of the probably the biggest, but of, that there are many others who have, you know, been very strongly influenced by the way that she wrote and the breadth and that it, she wrote across. And, and, and Neil and is I very think... vocal about 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 a, a discussing her influence and her importance to his life. Mm-hmm. I think, though, that you can place her in a fantasy tradition. But as Tansy said, it's one that's tended to be overwhelmed by Tolkien and Lewis. I mean, I'm currently working on children's fantasy from the 20s and 30s. Now, I don't think 
Jones was actually necessarily influenced by them because we know she didn't read these books as a child. But she's mm. clearly mining the same sources. I can see the similarities with T.H. White's Sword in the Stone, for example. Mm-hmm. She's got the same kind of sense of the absurd and the same willingness uh-huh. to mix um, the past and the present. There's a scene in there where we're told that the boys can't go to Eton because there's a giant in the way. Now, that's totally Diana Wynne Jones. You can imagine Diana Wynne Jones having kids not being able to go to Eton because there's a, gi- a giant in the way. That would then turn into <laughs> mm-hmm. a Jones story in White, it's just a throwaway. You can see the kinds of lonely children in all of John Macefield's books mm-hmm. or in Mistress Masham's Repose, for example. And Mistress Masham's Repose is a book that I've really, I really want to start looking more at because it's got the kind of rigorous ethical structure that I associate with Jones. One of the things that happens is that little girl goes to see the professor and say, says, what do I do with this, these Lilliputians? And he tries to explain to her that if she treats them like toys, they will turn on her. And in fact, that's what happens. And we get a little lesson in colonialism and imperialism. Again, that could be a Jones book. And some of that, I think, is coming from the political tradition Jones grew up in, which was left-wing bohemian, which is relevant because that's where all the fantasy of the 20s and 30s seems to be coming from. If she's got an ancestor at all, it's Edith Nesbitt, Mm -hmm. which is funny because Mm -hmm. she actually didn't like some of Edith Nesbitt's non-fantasy. She, she regarded them as goodie books. But it is quite clear that if she, that she may have come across some of the Nesbitt fantasy when she was a child. I think she may have picked them up at the library. There's various hints about that. It's not totally clear. And if you can link her almost directly to Nesbitt and Aiken, she's got mm. the same sense of humour and the same sense of the absurd. And it does seem to be a peculiarly English absurd. Well, I was going to say... Of she's throwing on the texts. Do, do you see her as being... Um connected with Aiken? I mean, that's what strikes me. I mean, they they seem like almost like parallel sister sort of careers in some ways. Well, the the comment I'd pick up from Jones is her piece from Deep Secret, where the heroine talks about seeing the world through wavy glass. And there are people who see the world fantastically through wavy glass and other people who give you a lecture on what the glass is made of Mm -hmm. and the fact that it was damaged by bombs. And that then parallels, say, to Aiken's Armitage family stories, which are almost all taking an odd sideways look at the world. So I think there's a very, very strong connection there. And certainly most people who like Jones really like Aiken's short stories. Not so much Aiken's um, book length works. They, they're more ordinary. I like them, but they are more ordinary. Mm-hmm. There's, there's clearly some kind of link there. Why do you think it seems so easy for us to place... Jones and Aiken and and the whole, to some degree, British fantasy tradition of of, of writers writing for children, to some degree outside of what we see as being the mainstream fantasy tradition, despite the richness and the the influential nature of it, because there does seem to be a kind of, well, we can trace, you know, uh, Tolkien through to Terry Goodkind or something, but that, and that's one particular narrow, narrow tradition. Mm -hmm. But it overlooks all of this stuff, and it seems like it's almost more comfortable. It's almost like a fantasy version of the whole Golden Age argument. But that's only one version of Tolkien. Sure. And in a sense, that's what Diana pointed out in Tough Guide to Fantasyland, that it I think China Mieville called them the Tolkienistas. What holds them together is not that they're influenced by Tolkien. What holds them together is that they're influenced by Terry Brooks. <laughs> well, it's Terry Brooks' extrapolation yeah, it, 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 of Tolkien that they've taken. People like Dana Wynne-Jones, Penelope Lively, Alan Garner, all these people are profoundly influenced by Tolkien, but they're influenced by all the rest of Tolkien. I I, I suspect that they, I suspect they'd read George MacDonald as well, don't you think? Yes. The the Victorian fantasy tradition was very closely allied with with, with young adult children's books. I mean, Thackeray and Ruskin and and, and George MacDonald, who we know Tolkien read and admired, uh, yeah. The, the the sense I get is that there's a generation now who believes that Tolkien or possibly Terry Brooks invented fantasy in the same way that there's a generation who believes that William Gibson invented science fiction. I've met a few, and they're often quite smart. I mean, these are not people <laughs> well, who yes. are right. They're just people for whom that's what's been available on the shelves. Yeah. And I think Amazon may be helping to break that down, the fact that you can now buy books that you see 
reviewed rather than being dependent on what's in the bookshops made a big difference. Um, I'm not somebody who's anti-Amazon. I think it's opened up a whole reading world for many people. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in terms of Jones's influences, she may well have come across MacDonald, but my gut feeling is she might have been rather repulsed by it. Um, MacDonald is a problematic writer. Oh, yeah. Once you start digging beneath the surface, he's awfully judgmental. But well, of course, was, we also he, know she read things like minister. the Golden Bough. This is true. She yeah. she read things like the Golden Bough. She read a lot of, she read a lot of the source text for fantasy, mm. which an awful lot of modern writers often don't seem to have done. Mm. They seem to take their texts from other people's versions and I do see that I can't remember what I saw recently it was somebody's query about something and it was horribly obvious that the query was based on an idea that they'd taken from somebody else without realizing that itself had a source legend and I suppose if, if Jones teaches writers anything it's go back to the sources <laughs> you know, but, but because they'll always have something that other people didn't spot isn't that I one think... of the things which is sorry Tans you go ahead Oh, and I was just to say that that uh, was a very interesting point thing about the other bits of Tolkien. I think when people refer to fantasy that's been influenced by Tolkien, it's a very absolutely it's just certain pieces, and even just certain pieces of Lord of the Rings. You know, yeah. people I'm possibly just thinking of the the quest parts and the battles, whereas the part of Tolkien that that you can see very connected to works like those of Jones, it's the it's the Hobbit, it's the it's the cups yeah. of tea and the umbrellas and the way that the mundane yes. and the magic are all kind mm. of mixed together that sort of everyday ordinariness and also the language she wrote a rather brilliant essay which you'll find in a book by Giddings in which she takes apart Lord of the Rings as a piece of music as an opera and it's it's utterly brilliant piece of work Uh, somebody ought to reprint it because she actually shows how Lord of the Rings functions as an opera. And when I was reading it for Rhetorics of Fantasy, by pure coincidence, they were playing the ring cycle on Radio 3 <laughs> over three days. And I read quite quickly. And what I found was that you could actually fit each book to each part of the ring cycle. Jones is right. It's an opera. Yeah. Wow. You know, and, and that Whoa. tells you something about the way she writes. Because when you look at the structures of her book, and I think I pointed this out in in my book, they have a very specific structure. The vast majority of them are screwballs. They're screwball comedies. They begin with a pebble moving, and by the end there is an entire um, mountain coming down on you. But I cannot remember now where I read it, but I think she quite enjoyed screwball comedies. Essentially, they're all bringing up baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And wow. I, I, I can actually see Diana on the end of a leopard, so I think that works rather well. <laughs> you know that wonderful scene where Catherine Hepburn's dragging in the leopard? Yes. Catherine Hepburn yeah. in the Diana Wynne-Jones biopic? Absolutely. <laughs> it would work perfectly. <laughs> One of the things I'm curious about, though, and this is partly by way of, 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 of amending the misstatements I may have made last week, uh, and, and this is especially relevant probably to you, uh, Tansy, and to you, Farah, is that uh, you, you both were girls, which I wasn't, and uh, and and to some extent, I missed. Well, no, seriously, uh, I missed the age when Diana Wynne Jones was being read by young people. I was not a young person at that age; I was an adult. So when I began to find out, I, I found out about her through her influences, not through her, and I realized that here was this uh, children's book writer back in the 80s and 90s who had been very influential, who I had missed essentially. Now, my question is, do you read her as a child or as a teenager? Um, did I? Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, did... I've got one at a time, Gary. It's getting confusing. Okay, Tansy okay. first. Okay, I'll Tansy. go first. I, I, absolutely, I discovered, I'm trying to remember when I first discovered her. I actually discovered her through television, which is kind of hilarious, but it was the early 90s version of um, Archer's Goon, which I found on TV. Which I've I, only just got. I, I, oh, found it last year. I came into the middle of, I think, maybe the second episode and I was just hooked and it just fascinated me. And then just coincidentally, um, a few months later, I found a copy of Archer's Goon tucked away in a tiny corner of a bookshop. It's like a scene out of a Diana Jones novel. This tiny uh-huh. little copy and I recognised it and I read it. And then I started hunting down her other books. And so I did only really start reading and that was sort of like my um, probably early to mid-teens 
So I really came oh. to her a bit later than a lot okay. of her works um, would suggest. I could have certainly have read her earlier had I known about her. But actually, I think it's... Oh, sorry, I just sorry. wanted to, to say that I'd only discovered later that I had in fact come across her earlier and hadn't realised, and it was because one of the most influential books on my idea of fantasy from very early was this um, anthology called Dragons and Warrior Daughters which I mentioned to you, I think, a few times, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And it came mm. out, it, it, I, I, I think I read it probably um, certainly before I hit my teens, and it's a collection of fantasy stories by female authors. And it, it remains one of the books that probably first really kicked me off in that direction. And there's a Diana Wynne Jones story in that, which I still is one of my favourite short stories ever, uh, which, which is... Which one is it, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the, the title is, is it, Home... Um, is it Homesick. Sorry. Dra Dragon Eight, Dra um, Home Dragon Eight, Homesick, or something like yes. that. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And I can never remember where the numbers go in the title, but that one. It's a wonderful we short story, and it's very, very Diana Wynne Jones. But I uh -huh. basically I discovered all her works, became obsessed with her, and then later found out that this story, which is the one that I remember most about that <laughs> anthology, was also by her. But uh, did you, you remember, remember who edited? Hang on, hang on. Do you remember, hang on, hang on. Do you remember Tan Tansy? Do you remember yes. that it's got a woman with three husbands? Yes. Yeah, that's the, the, and that's like just a background detail. It was. And it was just a minor detail. I'm actually digging the book off my shelf right now. Uh, Jessica Yates was the editor, but it's full of like, right. you know, Jane Yolen. Yeah, just all of the, yeah. the important female fantasy writers of the <laughs> 80s, really. Or it's right on the other side of the room. I can't go and get it without leaving okay. the call. I've I've got it here. It has stories by Jane Yolen, Tanith Lee, Pat McIntosh, Robin McKinley, Diana Wynne Jones, Vera Chapman, Pat McIntosh, and C. L. Moore. So yeah, mostly stories that were first published in the eighties or the seventies, and the C. L. Moore is the sixties. And I just mentioned that Jessica Yates is a well-known independent scholar. She's done the entries on children's science fiction in the Routledge Companion, okay. which is a big thing by Peter Hunt. She's very well known for her work on Diana Wynne Jones as well. And she was marvellous when I was doing my book. She kept me constantly supplied with ephemera that I wouldn't have come across otherwise. She's a very good scholar. Now, how did See, you... I've never heard of her in any other context except this book, which is one of my most beloved paperbacks. <laughs> It, well, um, I thought I'd give her a shout out. She deserves it. She's really excellent. Yeah, mm. no, that's fantastic. And to the point where the dragon that is on the front cover, I once painted on my bedroom do bedroom wall. So that's how that's how young I was, <laughs> and how influential the book was on me. So yeah, I, I discovered Diana Wynne Jones quite early, but have read her through well, my adulthood as well. Like, do I get my, that's uh, that, Yes, that's more, I want that's to hear more it. Or less, that's the point I was making. Is that is, is that uh, there must be an impact that you have at a certain age of reading someone like that. Now, at that age, no, roughly, not with Diana. I think I, well, may, well I, I understand that now. Um, but when I was roughly the age that you must have been when you were reading that anthology was when I read uh, The Once and Future King and, and then read, read everything I could find by, by T.H. White. Once and Future King was the only book I read annually for about three years when I was about probably 12 to 14 or something like that. And it's it's absolutely fascinates me, Farah, to find out the connection between between White and and Jones. Well, I think there is a strong one. I mean, to, to answer the question you asked, Tansy, yeah. I'm pretty sure I found my first one when I was about eight. I was very lucky. Uh -huh. I grew up in Birmingham, which is what used to be called a municipal socialist uh, city in Britain. That is, the municipal socialist Victorians had a huge influence. So I grew up within walking distance of four libraries, and then there was the big central library, and I had tickets for all of them. And at that point, I was getting uh -huh. like 16 books a week, easy. And I have a very clear memory of finding Charmed Life on the shelf in Birmingham Central Library and adoring it, but only being able to get hold of a couple more. Now, the thing you need to keep in mind is that the earlier the book, the more they tend to be written for younger children. And that only changes in the 2000s when she comes back into print. And some of the right. newer books are for younger children. But otherwise, I think it's fairly clear that she was actually writing as her children grew up. So... Um, Charmed Life, The Ogre Downstairs, Wilkins Tooth, Eight Days of Luke. 
8 to 10 to 12 year olds. Once you get onto Fire and Hemlock, you're talking about books aimed at 14 to 15 year olds. And she may no longer, in fact, be writing directly for her children. But keep in mind that the first few books, I think it's the first one, two, three, the first three have boys as protagonists. The first female protagonist is not until Dog's Body. And even the next book after that, Four Grannies, is back to a boy. Um, there are boys uh-huh. in Time of the Ghost. It's a boy in Homeward Bounders. It's a boy in Archer's Goon. These are not necessarily girls' books, not in the way we normally assume hmm. that they're girls' books, if that makes sense. I'd yeah. say the first book that's unequivocally a girls' book is Fire and Hemlock, because it's it's a romance. But even then, I know plenty of boys who met the book when they were quite young and were absolutely gripped by it. At this age, on the whole, girls are the readers, but I don't think she's necessarily just a girl's thing. And certainly at the Dinah Jones conference, I think about a third of the people there were men, which for a children's literature conference is high. Um, I always find it unnerving at children's literature conferences because I'm used to science fiction events, which are predominantly (laughs) male. And the first time I ever spoke at one, I got up, realized I was surrounded by a sea of women and almost choked. I'd never done that before. Um, Just just totally unusual for me. Um, But the key thing is. Oh, sorry. No, do go ahead. I was just going to say the key thing is that it doesn't seem to matter what age you read them. My partner Edward didn't come to them till he was in his 30s and was hooked. And some of that is about what Diana used to call the recognition factor, which is that they're designed in such a way that you're constantly recognizing new things in them, not just when you're reading them, but when you walk away and hit something else. Mm. And I I had this actually happen to me this week. Uh, In this case, it was internal. One of the big arguments in Diana and Jones' fandom is the ending of Fire and Hemlock. It's deeply ambiguous. You cannot quite tell whether Polly and Tom get to be together or not. In order to save Tom, Polly has to give up Tom. We don't know whether that's giving him up completely or simply giving up the romance of him. I tend towards the latter. But I was rereading Eight Days of Luke because of this podcast, and it was one I hadn't read for a while. And there's a piece in there about Sigurd and Brunhilde. And I suddenly realized, while we wait for the phone to stop, uh-huh. that Jones's interpretation of what happens to Sigurd and Brunhilde maps on perfectly to what happens to Polly and Tom. Polly and Tom are representations of those two characters. And this fits Fire and Hemlock perfectly because everybody says it's Tamlin and Thomas Arima, but it's Elliot's Four Quarters, it's the four pictures that Tom picks up, it's the books he gives Polly to read. I actually went and read every single book that he gives Polly to read. (laughs) And each cluster is relevant for the next section of the book. It helps you interpret what's happening next. This is a book that she packed so much into that yes the book's intended for a 14 year old but no 14 year old is going to pick Mm. up even a quarter of the references so who's it intended for yeah i find it very interesting because that's one of the books that i think i probably saw cited most in the Mm. wave of of responses to her death and so many people talking about well this was my favorite because i don't I've always found it incredibly hard to pick a favourite. And I think most people oh. have, but they sort of, a lot of people felt the need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But a lot of people did feel the need to cite their favourite upon her death. And the one that I saw over and over, I think Archer's Goon and, and Fire and Hemlock were the two most I most commonly saw. And those aren't ones that I've most seen people discuss more, like, in a, at other times. So I found it interesting that those were perhaps the two with the most... I guess people had the most emotional connection to. It might be sort what of grasping it. Certainly, that a lot of people had. No. A deep, what I think that, it is, and it's really exciting. My statement about this was misunderstood on Tor.com. Everybody rushed to tell me, no, no, their favourite was something else. I really do believe there are Archer's Goon people and Fire and Hemlock people. The two Mm -hmm. books represent the extremes of her writing. The urban screwball fantasy and the fantasy entangled in fantasy. And all her books then fit within a spectrum of those two. So that generally speaking, you tend to find people on either side. I'm much more an Archer's Goon person. All of her favourite books... Sorry, all of my favourites are very much on that urban fantasy screwball comedy end. I find Fire and Hemlock fascinating, but it's actually not one of my favourites. And and you can divide people. 
No, fair. One of the, one of the things. I mean, I Archer's Goon is one of the ones that I read. Too. I think it was the first one I read, and I think I read it because it looked like a comic paperback. It looked like a screwball comedy, as as you say. But um, and and then I think I read Howl's Moving Castle simply because the movie was about to come out, and I wanted to catch up with it. Yeah. But one of the things you said to me last week when we were talking was that uh, you you thought that each of her books took a specific trope from familiar fantasy formulas. And, and unpacked it and examined it and analyzed it in some way. And I thought that was fascinating because that essentially treats all of her works as critical fictions, as something that in some way, you know, examines the genre in the same way that she did in A, in, in a Tough Guide to Fantasyland. And that was the title I wanted for my book and they wouldn't let me have it. <laughs> it is a title really? for the opening chapter. Yes. I wanted to call it The Critical Fictions of Diana Wynne-Jones. That's if you had the book in front of you, you'd see it with the title of the first chapter, because that's hmm. exactly what she does. Archer's goon. Let's just take a, a thing off the top of my head. In Tough Guide to Fantasyland, she says, if you have a map, every place on the map must be visited. Well, at one right. point, uh, uh, Howard looks down at a map made by the, a younger class in the school of the town, and he ticks off all the places he's visited, and he then says, oh, I haven't visited the next two places, the other two places, I must go. And therefore, when he goes to the, the first one, you know that it's the second one, which is where the mystery will be unpacked. And that's before she wrote Tough Guide to Fantasyland. <laughs> do you think you can um, unpack, do you think you can correlate a lot of her individual novels with what she talks about in the Tough Guide to Fantasyland? Not quite so closely, because sometimes she's doing something else. Um, there's a, a rather brilliant Dalemark story. Um, the title's gone out of my mind, and I don't think it's listed on here, but it's in Everard's Ride. And a young woman finds herself imprisoned. She's fallen through a portal into a river. This girl has said, oh, let me help you. Let me swap clothes with you, and left her behind, at which point she's been captured as the missing princess. She then spends the next three months locked in a tower talking to her jailer while the war in Dalemark takes place outside. All we ever know of this war is what little bits she can pick up from the jailer. In the meantime, she's having a courtly romance with the captured king on the, in, on the other side of the courtyard. He sends her little notes, he waves to her, etc. The war ends, the doors open, and he disappears and takes no notice of her. Because as she realises afterwards, he was just entertaining himself within the rules of his culture. And we still know nothing mm. about the war, and we still know nothing about Dalemark. Because the person from whom she's getting the information, the jailer, who in fantasy terms is our mage figure, the one with all knowledge to dispense, doesn't know anything about it either. Mm. So whereas any other fantasy writer, I think, and I'm being cruel to everybody out there and I apologize, would have insisted that there would be some kind of revelation, she'd find something out, she'd have an adventure of her own, Diana says no. Some people are doomed to be stuck in a corner not knowing what's going on because they can't get the newspapers. And sometimes that's where the more interesting story is. Yeah. Well. And as a portal fantasy, it's brilliant because she says, no, you go through a portal into a strange world. You're only ever a tourist. You can't know how the culture functions. You can't walk in and take over the culture. And you may end up in serious trouble because you don't which of course is, is much closer to the true immigrant experience it's a brilliant piece of criticism of the portal fantasy i mean there's a very neat one in the middle of house moving castle where they go through a portal into what we would recognize as wales but sophie mm -hmm. sees it totally as a portal traveler um, and she talks about the stiff ugly blue clothing she seems to be wearing and she talks about everything around her as if she's in a magical kingdom, because to her it is. Actually, Disney pulls it off rather nicely in Enchanted, which I thought was interesting, but still not with quite the wit. Um, well, the critic, the, 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 that puts her into a different category entirely in, in, in my mind, which is the category of writers who write critical fictions. And yeah. we, we know about those writers in science fiction. We know that, uh, that actually there's a very good uh, book by Tom Moylan that addresses this issue. Uh, Le, Le Guin is writing critical utopias. Delaney is writing yes. fiction, which is critical of earlier science fiction. Russ was writing critical. It's rare in fantasy to find somebody who does this sort of thing in a non-trivial manner. I mean, you can have people who parody the conventions of fantasy. Yeah. You can have uh, Robert Asprin, who, who writes trivial novels that, that recognize that there's there, there's some implicit criticism of fantasy tropes in that. 
But it sounds like she went further in this direction than any other modern fantasy writer I can think of. Uh, here's I mean, another Soberlock, example in Drowned Amit. Hmm? There's an example from Drowned Amit. A very conventional thing in fantasy is somebody dresses up of a rank other than theirs. Yes, we've all seen that. They disguise mm-hmm. themselves as a prince or whatever. Right. In Drowned Amit, um, Mitt puts on the clothing of a, of a courtier boy in order to join a parade so he can throw a bomb. But he looks in the mirror and realizes he looks all wrong because they're all taller than him and fitter than him and healthier. And he still looks like a wiry street urchin dressed in clothes he shouldn't be in. Yeah. And it's a small point, but it then changes everything that goes beyond. And when he does throw the bomb, it causes chaos. Um, terrorism does not have the effect he's been taught it will. Um, small bands of rebels fighting against the government do not bring the government down. They only bring reprisals. She's a very realistic fantasy writer. I mean, one of the odd comments she made, which I'd, I'd have loved to unpack that with her, was that she insisted that children should have happy, hopeful endings. She made this in response to Hilary McKay's book, um, Safi's Angel, which she really didn't like. She, I think it may have been too close to the knuckle for her. It was a very ramsha- It was about a very ramshackle family that was very happy. And of course, mm. Diana's experience of a ramshackle family was very unhappy. Mm. But her idea that b- books should be hopeful for children is interesting because many of her books have hopeful endings, but they don't have happy endings. In Dog's mm. Body, Kathleen's father has been in prison because he's an IRA terrorist. Now, first of all, he is a terrorist. Most writers would have made it a false accusation. And secondly, he dies escaping from prison. Mm. That's a book aimed at 12-year-olds. Now, Kathleen has a hopeful ending because she finds a new foster family. But it's not a happy ending. Oh, and her dog dies because Sirius, the dog star, goes back to the heavens. So she loses her dog and her father dies. And that kind of, of ending, again, I think, is a critique of fantasy endings for children. Because, yes, they're often hopeful, although I don't think the ending of Homeward Bounders is, where Jamie basically gets left to wander the bounds in order to preserve the, the worlds for the rest of us. It's a very depressing ending. But they aren't. I have a question for all of you then. Is anybody doing that kind of fiction now? Francis uh, Harding. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Francis Harding. I would think maybe Kathleen Dewey. Yes. Um, who else? Those two who are just outstanding. And like Diana, they aren't attracting ma- mass audiences. They're attracting small, hardcore audiences who grab you by the scruff of the neck and say, you will read this author. You must read this <laughs> well, author. And, and they're also tra- attracting a lot of adult audiences, a lot of adult readers, yeah. it yeah. seems to me. I'd like to include Margot Lanigan there, but actually I think she's doing something rather different. I think she's uh, got the same kind of, of rigor, but I don't think she's writing the same kind of fantasy no. and i'm not quite sure what i mean by that at the moment well i think i i, I think i'm glad you mentioned margot lanigan because it seems to me that one of the things she does when she when she specifically addresses mythological or uh, earlier fantasy traditions i think she does that i think jeff ford does something like that as well when he's in his mythological mode um other margot lanigan fictions seem to me to be much more folkloristic in a, in, in a sense that uh, that I find utterly fascinating, but they tend to be with folklore traditions I'm not that familiar with. But when she retells the they story also... of... Uh, I was going to think, she retells the, the story of Passover, essentially, in one of her stories. And, and that's oh. absolutely fascinating, because it's a critique of one of the basic uh, fantastic tales of Western culture. The one story she's written, which strikes me as very Jones-ish, is Singing My Sister Down. Which might explain how it managed to end up on the BSFA nomination list. Uh And I thought of that as a very Shirley Jackson-ish story. Oh, I think Diana Wynne-Jones wrote horror. We don't talk about it, but she wrote horror. Um, Time of the Ghost. I'm assuming, Tansy, you've read Time of the Ghost. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's one that... And I I, I do think that's probably one that... um, Because I know, Jonathan, you were talking about uh, a while ago about... Um, Dynamite Jones' biography and how that fits in with her her fiction. This is the book which is absolutely the most um, I mean I didn't know any of the biographical stuff about her childhood really 
um, until after she died, and I was reading all the, um, you know, eulogies. Um, but I immediately went, oh, that's suddenly time of the ghost. Suddenly, <laughs> the ghost. It's one of the most. Uh, de- and that is probably the work I would, if you're going to compare any of Dynamite Jones's work to Margot Lanigan, um, there is a lot about Time of the Ghost that I could see fitting in with with what Margot does. But oh, it's a very very dark story. It's Hitchcock story. It is. It's, it's, it's appalling. Right down to the yeah to the no, but right down to the fact that it's told on a bright summer's day. Yes. It's a horror and- story that takes place in the height of summer. Mm. And she does so many things in it that she does in her other books, like the constantly pulling the rug out from under you and the twists and all the cleverness. But because it's wrapped up with the horror, it's just, oh, it, it, it's a really, really intense reading experience. And what makes it particularly horrific is that the protagonists don't know they're in a horror story. I think it's one of the very few books. One of the things Jones does is she allows her protagonists to negotiate the world through knowledge because they know things and this is right there in Wilkins Tooth where knowledge of fairy tales allowed them to defeat the Baba Yaga knowledge allows them to steer their way through it's there in Fire and Hemlock that's why Polly gets to read all these these Mm -hmm. books it's there in Archer's Goon where Howard searches for knowledge Time of the Ghost is the exception in Time of the Ghost the knowledge is all held in the future the girls do not know they're in a horror story pardon me they do not know they're in fantasy they do not have the rule and crucially and this may take us back to Lewis Carroll's Alice Through the Looking Glass or Alice in Wonderland as well they don't know the rules of the society they live in partially because nobody's telling them their parents don't tell them the rules they're almost completely unsocialized and that's very much from her experience of childhood where because her her upbringing was so unconventional she hadn't a clue what adults were talking about when they told her off Mm. you have parents hadn't hadn't had not socialized her and that i think is what this book is is about and makes it so different from the others because it does stand out in a way it's it's the least comforting of her i mean i I find unless you come from that kind of background now my background is not as extreme i wouldn't want to over egg the pudding here but my i grew up during that period where certain types of parents felt that all conventional parenting was a bourgeois plot. Hmm. I was cooking my own food by the time I was 11, doing my own laundry. Um, All of these things were supposed to make me more independent. I was slightly luckier in that my mum was actually quite rigid over some things, so there was at least some kind of framework. But there are aspects of this novel that I found comforting, simply because I thought, oh, other people have that kind of upbringing too. (laughs) So... I think, actually, I think there are ways in in which it is actually a very reassuring book for some readers, Um, which may, I think, be why she reacted so badly to Hilary McKay's book. Um, I think she was wrong. I think there are plenty of ramshackle families who actually are very happy. But for Diana, it felt like a lie. Mm. And there are issues around that. I mean, big, happy, hippie families, we've all seen them. What is it like being on the inside? And I can tell you, it's pretty uncomfortable if you're doing if you're essentially looking after yourself at the age of 11. It's interesting. There's a, there's a connection between that and, and screwball comedy in, in the sense that there are a lot of screwball comedies in American theater. For example, uh, Kaufman and Hart's You Can't Take It With You or uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, which are exactly that kind of family. And there's sort of there's a subtext of horror stories in all of those. They've all been made into popular films as well. You know, Cary Grant has been yeah. was in Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I, th- I think part of the nature of screwball comedy is a. I am making this up as I go along. I thoroughly admit, but maybe there's a great deal of screwball comedy that's disguised horror. I think it is a version of horror. Certainly, there's always a victim. I mean, let's go back to bringing up Baby as the one we all know. The mm-hmm. Cary Grant character there is a victim of the unraveling world. He has this nice, orderly world that he thinks he knows how it functions. And then somebody comes along who possibly doesn't know the rules, certainly isn't about to obey them, and everything mm-hmm. starts to spin. And we look at it from the Catherine Hepburn point of view. But if you look at it from the other point of view, it's a horror. Yeah, well, and if it's you look a at our, fantastic our... podcast, which, um, which analysed bringing up what bringing up baby uh jennifer cruzy and um uh lucy march were analyzing romantic comedies the history of romantic comedies one by Uh one as podcast 
they did bring up baby and they it was really really interesting because they looked at it and said there is absolutely no way that this is a romantic comedy it's one of the most famous romantic comedies of all time it's the one people <laughs> yeah. fall out but it's not because if you look it's at it not. there's actually no romance like it's nope. only because it's Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and they get right. together at the end but actually it's like either yeah. it's the story of you know, this, it's this absolutely bizarre woman who crashes into this man's life, systematically destroys it. She is very cute while she's doing it. Absolutely. If you change the music, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it also strikes well, me that, ripping on what you're saying, Gary, that screwball comedy has exactly the same structure that I identified for horror and rhetorics of fantasy. That is, it starts off small and a distance away, and each bit of each reprisal of horror gets closer to you and bigger and more destructive. Well, there are two it's things. Exactly that, yeah, exactly. They're involved. I mean, if you look at Arsenic and Old Lace, it's about uh, two uh, elderly ladies who murder all their suitors and keep them in the <laughs> in, in, in the house and carry Grant to sky. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is that if you reverse that polarity and take a horror story and redo it as screwball comedy, you've basically got Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> or Zombieland, or... Which takes us to a comment that Nalo Hopkinson made to me, that one of the issues about horror is it assumes that the horror is fascinated with us. It's very colonialist. It assumes that that thing out there must adore us, must be fascinated by us. Mm -hmm. Which then suggests that all horror is a form of romance. Well, there's there's a, there's a very thin line between horror and comedy, as as you, as you can see in all these movies we've been talking about, and, uh, and it's like an showing thin students line old horror movies. I teach genre fiction, and the one thing I have learned is that I can show old movies of every other genre. I cannot show old horror movies; it has to be clips only, because every time I try, I end up with students rolling in the aisles in laughter. They date. <laughs> Sure. I, I've tried this. I've got grandkids. Try showing the 1931 uh, Bela Lugosi Dracula to these kids. They, one of two things will happen. They will either start rolling on the floor <laughs> laughing or they will fall asleep. There's no horror yeah. reaction to it whatsoever. No. Old horror doesn't work. No. Which is funny because that does suggest that this whole Hollywood tradition of remaking and remaking, remaking, actually in this case completely makes sense. <laughs> Like you're going to have to have a new version of Dracula every generation. Yeah. And in part that's because it, it keeps leeching on different taboos. I mean, I, I do show them clips from Jekyll and Hyde. They, I can't remember which one it is, the very old one, silent movie where essentially he oh, morphs was... into a black man. Oh, that one that always has them pretty amused. Oh. In fact, they actually have trouble recognising that that's what's supposed to be happening. Because, of course, it's some, well, there's a moment when it actually is a black actor, but then it morphs into somebody blacked up. And they really have trouble recognizing it as a black man, which I find interesting. I have a... They don't have we're, we're, yeah, but we're into a almost completely different topic. But I think we're getting into what we're talking about, about this sort of long-term mm. influence of the insights that we get from, from Jones. Is that I've got a, most, uh, half my students, more than half my students are probably African-American. And they all know the movie Blackula. And I don't know how familiar the movie Blackula is to anybody who wasn't in the States in the 70s, but it was a black exploitation movie that dealt with a, a black guy who's Dracula, essentially. And it's a hoot. It's hilarious. It's terrific. It's wonderful. But at the time, people thought it was a horror movie. Now they think this is, this is an empowerment movie in some bizarre way. Like, like we can, you know, we can, 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 can suck people's blood as well as anybody else. <laughs> you know, you've just reminded me of something. If you want a direct link of influence to Gaiman, it's from Diana Wynne Jones's Wilkins Tooth. Do you remember? Sorry, not Gaiman. Sorry, Terry Pratchett. I meant another uh -huh. another writer. Yes, Do you remember Yolus? Do you remember Yolus in Only You Can Save Mankind? Yolus is a young black boy. He's Johnny's best friend. And the key thing about Yolus is he's called Yolus oh, because going. he. He isn't cool. Well, that's a character in Wilkins Tooth. It's her first published children's book. And it's uh -huh. not her first written. She wrote it to meet certain requirements because she was told, if you can meet these requirements and get this book in print, we'll take the other two. That's uh, a short form. And one of the characters in that is a young black boy. And the key thing is, even though his family is from Jamaica, 
He knows nothing about things like Obeya or voodoo or any of the things they ask you about because he's grown up in Britain. Uh-huh. And it totally undercuts all the sets of stereotypes about what so you... black boys are supposed to know. And that and becomes I the Nancy boys. It becomes the Nancy boys and it becomes Yolas in mm. Only You Can Save Mankind. And it's a very early book. It's 1973. Mm. But that's early enough for Gaiman to have read it quite really? young. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is it. It's it's easy to forget how long she was writing. I only know a couple of children's writers with longer careers than that. I'm working on a writer called Jeffrey Trees, whose first book was 1934 and whose last one was 1998, a year after he died. Um, That's a long career. But there's only 50 titles here. And the huge amount of change over time that takes place in her work. And I mean, I pointed out that I read Eight Days of Luke and see a comment on Fire and Hemlock. That's an argument to be made that you can't understand some of her latest books unless you've read all the others. But I'd hate to make it because it might put people off and I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> well, I think it's certainly true that in the last decade, well, really, the I think from yeah. Merlin Conspiracy on, which are kind of the post-reprint books, like the point at yes. which all came out and were reprinted and lots of people were reading them, suddenly you do see her returning to old worlds a lot more, writing more yeah. sequels, followed on which was wonderful for those of us who've read her books for so long because I know that a lot of the frustrations I would find about her books was that she was doing things, um, you know, she writes very short books, especially mm. before The Merlin Conspiracy. Mm. So many of her books are yeah. so short and they always finish at least three chapters before you want them to. You're talking <laughs> about the ambiguous endings. <laughs> you know, there's always that, especially as a child. It's terribly yeah. frustrating. And it's like the Christian oh, Man. I, I love that. I, I, I actually get a liking from being with them. <laughs> When I was 12, it used, yeah. to, I used, to, used to drive me up the wall, but now I can really appreciate it. But it's like the Crestomancy series, and we talk about it as a series, but until very recently, it, the series was only made up of four books, two of which I think had Crestomancy in it as a very, very, very minor character, and the other two are separated by a generation of time. So yeah. they are a series, but it's not the kind of series in the way that, say, Harry Potter, which is, you know, we haven't really got into that, but is very much uses a lot of the, the things that Diana Wynne Jones were doing. But it, that has a different kind of series. So when people go to something and expect a series these days, they do expect, I think, a lot more of direct follow on and that satisfying feeling or comforting of returning to the same thing. Whereas when Diana Wynne Jones returned to the same series, she would actually do a completely different book, often with a completely different cast of characters. Um, but, and the but, other person who I realised recently does that is Terry Pratchett. Yes. When I started rereading them all recently, and I can't remember why I was doing it, I suddenly realised that every so often you'll hit a line, literally just a line, in an earlier book yeah. that becomes a later book. So there is a comment in one book, I think it's one of the guards' books, but I couldn't tell you which one offhand, about a young man with a, a talking with a cat and performing rats who've been driven out of Ankh-Morpork after they've been caught cheating people. Mm. Well, that's Morris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a year gap between these. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he'd gain a hint. Now, which reminds me, there's one book I particularly want to talk about. Not one of my favourites, actually. I, I think later Jones are problematic. I think they tend to be a little overly romantic. And I think the sting went out of them. Um, after her mother, she made her peace with her mother in her mother's last years. And suddenly the mothers start being a bit nicer, or at least getting <laughs> excused. In Conrad's fate, there turns out to be a spell on the mother, thus explaining why she was so neglectful. Very suspicious. Oh, no, I don't like that yeah. at all. Yes, but I think that comes from her making her peace with her mother. But in Year Uh, of the Griffin, which is in part about the revival of a university and is a very big attack on what's going on in universities, at one point, the five students sit down and write their essays and they all do them differently. And if you go to my own website, I've actually got this next piece written up with Diana's permission, I wish to to say. Uh, She allowed me to just copy it out because it's a set of models of how to do research. And the one that got me is a person starts with one piece of paper on which she writes a spell. She then shows how that spell branches into three different spells. She then has the next layer, which it branches into three other spells. And eventually she's sticking bits of paper onto this sheet and it opens out and opens out with lots and lots of different spells coming off on little bits of paper. As you show how one piece of research 
one question, as you answer one question, you get three questions. As you answer each of those, you get more questions. As you answer each of those. Now, Gary will recognize this structure from um, Wayne C. Booth's The Craft of Research. Yes, the, uh, Gary? Oh, the, oh, the Craft of Research. You were, you were not talking about the yeah. radical fiction. You're talking about his research book. No, yeah. I'm taking one of a, a classic Diana Wynne-Jones left turn here. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Because what she's describing is exactly what Wayne C. Booth describes as the rhetoric of a research project. That right. is how you do research. You ask a question and it doesn't give you an answer. It gives you three more questions. And each of those gives you three more questions. In fair, the era fair, of the Griffin, foot, 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 foot down, fair, I think that runs through books. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, no it's, it's a footnote because people don't know. But Wayne C. Booth, I believe, was the best academic critic about science fiction possibly ever. And he, he was one of my mentors at the University of Chicago, so I'm defensive about this, but he wrote a book called The Rhetoric of Fiction, which I made Farrah read. <laughs> and are you, huge influence. It's a huge, it's a hugely important book about how people incorporate their beliefs into their fiction. Most can I just say, it's written in Gary, it's written in plain English. People need to know this. He also <laughs> oh, yeah. demonstrates that you write literary criticism in plain English. The number of writers, uh, actually, writers, uh, uh, I, speaking as a critic, I have to say this, and Farah, you're a critic as well. We're all critics here. Um, but the notion that there are a number of significant fiction writers who are influenced by a book of criticism just warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> but can I also say, what then happened is you made me read it because I picked up the craft of research on your desk. Right. Well, I, I now that. regard that book as the Bible for anybody doing a research project. I make people read it before they apply to me for their PhDs. <laughs> I say, you've got to read this book, then we will discuss your project, but not until. And then they have to read it again when they're doing their proposal and again when they're doing their registration papers. <laughs> Sleep with it, eat it, you know. But my point <laughs> here is that I actually think that this lies behind the structure of many of her fantasies as well. Um, and here I'd point to the crown of Dalemark. The, cra the Dalemark sequence starts with what seems like a relatively simple book, Carton Quidder, in which Morrill finds himself in a fantasy tale without realising it, something that she's used, she, an idea she uses several times. We talked about Time of the Ghost for that. But the events of that book then start to snowball into the next book and the next book until we have four books, each of which are about questions that are asked about the world. I mean, Spellcoats, which is a, a very strange book and took me a lot of reading to get a grip on. It's set in the deep history of Dalemark. The four characters we're looking at are hybrid that we know they don't that one of their parents is not from the tribe they've grown up in we eventually figure out that two of them might be gods and if you pay close attention you can figure out which ones but we again in fact actually it matches the story in Everard's ride we don't know the full story of what's going on around them because they spend much of their time stuck in a tent while the war's happening beyond them and they don't know their own significance well actually that it's a lot like being in the middle of a research project where you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're finding out and you're writing it up as best you can. Oh. And somebody may come along later and say, ah, oh, but you didn't know X, to which the answer is, well, no. And Spellcoats is partially about that. It's written from a position of not knowing. I mean, that, you see, I think is one of the things that makes Joan so different. She, she can hold on to this position of not knowing longer than almost anybody I know. And I think this ties into Tansy's feeling that they often feel ambiguous because she refuses the moment of revelation over and over again. She's very even in, Yeah. She's even in eight days of look. Sorry. Sorry. Me first? Okay, me first. Um, um, I was just going to say, even in eight days of Luke, where actually, if you know the Norse mysteries, it, it unpacks beautifully, it's never actually stated that the whole thing, the whole story behind it is never explained. We don't get the download, oh, of course, Thor will need his hammer for the final battle against the ice giants. We simply get a comment, of course, Thor, um, Thor will need the thing we've just stolen in the final battle in which Luke is probably going to be on the other side. The ambiguity is maintained. And that's a book for maybe eight-year-olds. Tansy! Yeah. <laughs> As, I think, okay, okay, Tansy. Yes, 
the reader's perspective. Um, her books uh, are so densely packed, but they're very, very light and readable. And this is the thing. This is why she's such – I think part of the reason she's such a beloved writer is because, as, as Farrah has been saying all along, you can read her over and over again and you get new things out every time. And this is absolutely something she has in common with Pratchett, except that her prose is far less dense than Pratchett's. It is, you know, prose for children to read. And and yet there's just so many – there are so many layers there that the adult – and the adult, as you grow up, you're always finding new things. And so you can go back over and over again, and the books are different every time you go back to them. There are familiar parts there, but then, yes, you get all these different layers that you can unpack. And the more you know, the more you can get out. But often they're quite simple stories, beautifully plotted. I always admire – she has these amazingly complicated plots in these tiny books. I mean, before Merlin Conspiracy – all the books before that, I mean, looking, I'm looking at my shelf at the moment. They're these tiny, slender volumes, and yet about they have so pages. much story packed into them. Yeah. They're between about 150 and 200 pages. I mean, the thing about the prose, though, is deceptive. I mean, Tansy's right. They're written so children can read them. But one of the things I started to become aware of was just what a fabulous stylist she is. I mean, even, there are throwaways. One I picked up this week. At the beginning of Time of the Ghost, we hear a Latin lesson where a kid is being told um, something between the difference between mens and mensa. Mensa is, is mind and mensa is a table. Well, I don't know if you have mensa in Australia or America. It's, we'll think about it. I give a She's just taken the piss class, out of a whole... She's just taken the piss out of a whole organization. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I completely missed it. <laughs> I caught it this time because my Latin is better than it used to be. Um, but in something like The Magicians of Caprona, and I've talked about this, in the opening passages of The Magicians of Caprona, she uses a four-paragraph process of shifting tense and focalization to take us from the distant past to the present. It is a masterpiece of control of grammar, focalization, plot summary. I mean, I, I'm not a grammarian and I don't actually have the language to describe it, but I now actually set just that piece for my students to show them what you can do with words. Because one of my pet phrase, pet words is precision. Say exactly what you mean. And that's the thing that Jones does, that her use of of language on a word-by-word -word basis, on a phrase-by-phrase -phrase, phrase basis. I can think of other, other writers who are as good, but I can't think of any other writer who is as good and can do it in a way that works for children, that, that does what Tansy says, mm. that is so instantly accessible and yet is so sophisticated. Absolutely, I would agree with that. I think I've rendered well, you all speeches. I mean, you well, really do have, you need to go back and look at a single paragraph of any of us. Hexwood, this is one people don't talk about much. It's actually a favourite of mine because it's one of her few science fiction books. And truthfully, I'm an SF reader rather than a fantasy reader, despite everybody's assumptions. And Hexwood, if you pay very careful attention to the grammar, and I mean very careful, you can tell when you're in the world of the virtual reality game, which is what it is, and when you're in the real world. But you really do have to pay very close attention. She uses different grammar, and she, she uses Tolkien's trick that he uses in Lord of the Rings, but in the shifts between Sam and Frodo and, and, and the rest of the characters, in that she shifts between demotic and high speech. And yeah. again, she uses that to tell us where we are. And I, I once criticized a book by Trisha Sullivan, not the book itself, but because I think Trisha had decided to write it in three different fonts. And I pointed out that if you had genre recognition for fonts, which most SF readers do, you knew that font A was a computer world, font B was a typescript, and font C was somebody's mind. Because we know if it's in italics, it's in their imagination, yes? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Jones does the equivalent with grammar which is a hell of a lot more clever. <laughs> well, I should say, this, this podcast is known for running for about an hour, and we've probably reached close to that. And I really just wanted to ask you guys a very trivial, shallow question before we, we wind up. And I think it's relevant given uh, the shallow waters in which I've trodden in on this subject, and to a lesser extent that Gary has, and that is, given that you are both deeply knowledgeable about Jones's work, 
if one of the listeners to the podcast wants to start reading Jones and hasn't, where do they start? Oh, oh it's impossible. It's very not. I, I would not presume to actually answer that question without knowing a lot about that person because I think it's different for every yes. person. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, that was what I was going to say. You can match a Jones per- book the person. Absolutely. Well, well why if don't you, you were do it, Mary? Does that mean Barry, that we should offer an individual oh. fitting via the website? If you fill no, out a profile, we'll send it to and you'll recommend it. Yes, but what we can do is we can say, if you read like X author, you could try Y book. Okay. So if you're a gamer author, I'd say go for Archer Schoon. Okay. Um, if, if, you like Shirley Jackson, if you like Shirley Jackson, try Time of the Ghost. If well, you okay, this really is, this like is, this is... myths and legends, I'd recommend Fire oh. and Hemlock. Yeah. So, Farrah, the fact that you said I should read Time of the Ghost tells me what you think of me? <laughs> you, said, uh, you said you like Shirley Jackson. <laughs> I like Shirley Jackson. You know I'm friends with Peter Straub, so it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, I think uh, you'd like Time of the Ghost. I think you'd find I'm, yourself... Oh, or I Black Mariah. Forward to it. And, and by the way... Black as, Mariah, as which in the States, by the way, is Aunt Mariah. Which complete, right, now, there's an interesting example. Aunt Mariah, com, as a title, completely wrecks the title. The title is Black Mariah. It's a card game. Mm. Okay? Um, but th- that's a fascinating one about... Sorry, I'm backing up again. That's a fascinating one about use of language. Because she uses language there to show us how people function in a state of forgetting. You have a perfectly logical conversation in which Mig is trying to convince her mother that the, her brother is missing. And every time her mother only answers the question she's just been asked with something logical and doesn't link all the questions together because she's been prevented by doing so by a spell. But it's a lovely example of how language works and how dialogue works. But I'd, I'd say if you like Shirley Jackson, Black Mariah or Time of the Ghost. Tansy, what about you? What do you think? Well, I was going to say, I do think that um, Jonathan in particular would, <laughs> I was going to recommend Time of the Ghost to him because he did seem very interested in the way that um, Dynamo Jones's biography and, and fiction sort of melded together. I think that would be a very interesting one for you. And obviously you've already recommended that to Gary as well. Um, as Farrah was saying earlier, Gary, I think the, um, for you, the, the Dark Lord of Durkham and particularly the Year of the Griffin might be of interest to you because they are some of the mo- more overt books which do intercede with with fantasy and with fantasy traditions and university i mean year of the griffin is basically just wall-to-wall university in jokes so i think you uh-huh. would like she was that. married to a university lecturer she knew yeah. her stuff I know she was married. yeah and, it's, it's, oh and say for science fiction readers um that the science fiction novels are tale of time city hexwood and homeward bounders and i think of the three homeward bounders that's a deeply, deeply moving book. Um, I will another... check these. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> One which Stand is probably up. very accessible as a starting point for people who are just, you know, just starting out to be interested, which a lot of people don't talk about, but I think is is a, a lot of fun. Is is deep deep secret. Simply yes. because <laughs> it's set in a science fiction convention. A fiction convention. <laughs> so if, you're, if you're a con goer. Yeah, and it's it's got lots of lovely in jokes. And just for the scene of a real centaur running through a lobby in a science fiction convention, streaked with blood, I think, and there are arrows and and people just like watching and convinced. The plotting. Elaborate cosplay. And it's like, how did they do that? Particularly for anybody who's ever been to the Heathrow Radisson. I don't think it's the hotel that Diana was describing, but it certainly could be. The Heathrow Radisson is known amongst fans as the Heathrow Euclidean. Because <laughs> uh, you can get very lost very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think that maybe on that happy note, we might wind this up. So, first of all, I'd like to thank you, T- Tansy and Hobart, for taking the time to talk to us. I greatly appreciate it, and I'm sure Jerry and Carrie does too. Thank, thank you for having me. It was lovely to meet you, Farah. <laughs> it was lovely I'm, to meet you again, I hope, if yes. I ever get out to Australia. And yes. I, obviously, thank you, Farah, as well, for, for, for joining us. It's greatly appreciated. I'd point out that your book, Diana Wynne-Jones, Children's Literature and the Fantastic Tradition, is out there and is something that, that readers should hunt down if they can. It's a, and it's in paperback now. Oh, always because good. Because if they hit really? the hardback, that's a horrible price. But it is now in paperback. And I also wish to say, the title was not my choice and I can never remember. For me, it will always be The Critical Fictions of Diana Wynne-Jones. <laughs> I remember that conversation. 
And Gary? And jo- Jonathan, you and I, will, will will we be able to talk about the Hugo nominations by next week? Do you think? No, no, it's it's, it's the no. Sunday morning of Swan Concert. It's Easter Sunday, that morning that they Easter come out. Sunday. So oh, we're a couple okay. of weeks away yet. So. Oh. But, but we will get a chance to talk to them. I mean, it's, in fact, it's the same time when Farah, no doubt, will be busy sitting and uh, hearing the British Science Fiction Awards announced. Because I believe it's all the same oh, yes. exact same time. Oh, right. That's going to be fun. So it'll be a, a, cool. a, a busy time. So you're so telling me that essentially, essentially every English-speaking nation except the United States has a convention during Easter? No, actually, you do have one. I figure, yes, yes but they're, they're going to announce it. Isn't Balticon at Easter? I have no idea. I don't know about conventions. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> oh, I know that they're going to announce it at uh, Westercon or something, which is on exactly the same time. Yeah, oh, okay. and I think I'm fairly sure that Bol- that Baltimore has one at Easter weekend. It I could very be well wrong, be. but I'm, I think it does. I'm, I'm very ignorant. Because um, I think I remember a clash once. But yes, I will be at EasterCon, which will be interesting. We're going to be stuck out by at the Birmingham NEC, which really could be a venue for the Diana Wynne Jones novel. <laughs> okay. Well, I will talk to you next week, right. Gary. I'll talk to you again, Farah, and to you again, Tansy. And hopefully, you in Reno. Okay. Yes, bye. Okay. Bye.